back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have Kaylee Christensen and Kelly Oriard, and they are founders of Slumberkins, and we're super excited to have them on the show because they have a really, really unique story. Now, you guys, I mean, at this point, the company has done $3 million in revenue. You're on track to do $3 million in revenue this year alone. You've been on Shark Tank. Uh, you obviously are much further along probably than maybe you even imagined you would be when you came up with this idea while you were both on maternity leave. And between the two of you, you have six kids. Is that right? Yes. How many kids did you have when you started the company? Oh, I had none. This is Kelly. I oh. had zero. You had one. Well, no, I had him, and then we started. Like we started it simultaneously. Well, but we started you, it on maternity leave yeah. together. Okay. So you had one. <laughs> I guess I had one. And I had three. Yes. Wow. Yes. Who can yes. keep track? Uh, no, hopefully you <laughs> Too can. many to keep track of. <laughs> but it's pretty crazy to me because, you know, I mean, financially, a lot of people will think, oh, I can't start a business because I have student debt or I'm a mom or dad or, you know, there's all these other responsibilities. You guys were educators and you were in roles that aren't, you know, you weren't investment bankers or consultants where you were pulling in a ton of money that could fund a company like this. And I think you even mentioned that during maternity leave, you took turns paying yourself $700 a month, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not a ton. Uh, <laughs> And yet you decided to start this company. So how did the idea come about for Slumberkins? And then why were you motivated to take the plunge and take the risk? Well, I think for us, we had an idea and I don't think we had a, we had big dreams of what it could be, but we didn't really know or understand the steps that it was actually going to take to get there. And so every step that we took was like a big celebration. So as we came up with the concept of Slumberkins, which was to promote emotional wellness in children and to give parents tools to teach that to children. And we thought of, you know, creating these little snuggly creatures that were unique and stuff that you couldn't find in the stores that we couldn't find in the stores for our own kids. We just taught ourselves to sew with a an initial $200 investment actually borrowed from my mom at the time because Thanks, yeah, <laughs> on unpaid maternity leave <laughs> from uh, education and, you know, taught ourselves to sew and started creating these products. And we didn't have expectations around, oh, we had, need to get to a million dollars in sales. I think we joked about it. Like, you know, one day we could maybe do that, but we, you know, sold out of 20 of them that we sold at a craft fair, like a local high school, and we were on fire. We were so excited about it. We're like, oh, the Slumberkin sold out. That's amazing. Yeah. I think from that $200 initial investment into fabric, <laughs> we um, made $700 on the first craft fair. And so then wow. we took that $700 and went and bought a whole bunch more fabric and then turned that into, I think, probably $1,200. And it just we just kept reinvesting everything that we made in revenue back into buying bigger lots of fabric. And this was our handmade side hustle at this point where we were, babies were sleeping, we were sewing. And um, at the same time, we realized, okay, our maternity leaves are coming to the end. What are we going to do? This is such a 
this is an amazing opportunity and people are resonating with it. So I actually pitched the story to multiple publishers and book agents and got no's. And so then we were like, all right, we're just going to figure out, we're going to do it ourselves. And so uh, Kelly writes all of our stories as the therapist behind the brand and I'm the special education teacher. So Kelly really infuses each board book with a therapeutic technique that makes doing preventative interaction and therapeutic empowerment with your kids. We kind of call our board book series like an emotional toolkit for parents to use with kids, but but I make them approachable and digestible for parents to use. So what was the unique idea when you were starting off? Because obviously you, you learned how to sew and I guess you were writing these books as well. But talk about uh, why you were even motivated to start something like this and what was different about it. I think with both of our careers working in education, we both experienced that if parents were involved in the process of um, supporting a child through a difficult experience or wanting to be more involved in their emotional development, the child always made more progress if a parent was involved in the process. Yeah, definitely. As a therapist, that's the number one thing that you look for, right? That there's parent, the parent is giving the message, not necessarily somebody else. So you give the power to the parent to be able to empower their child to do the things that we were seeking to help them with, like self-esteem, relaxation, mindfulness, these kind of things that, you know, as a parent who doesn't maybe have training on it, you're like, oh, I would love my child to, you know, be able to have really great self-esteem if they get bullied and feel, you know, bad about themselves. But what tool is that? How do you actually instill that in a child? And so um, helping create tools that parents can use to start building that up at a young age before their brain is completely formed, which at age five, 90% of the brain is completely formed. So what was the very first product? I mean, did you already have this kind of figured out in your mind? This is what Slumberkins is. And was it a book and the stuffed animal that you like one version of it that you just started taking to fairs? Yeah. So if you actually look up the hashtag spoon and moon on Instagram, you can see some of our very first handmade creatures mm -hmm. that are now selling for like $300 on buy, sell, trade pages. It's wow. crazy. Um, and our first stories were printed just on cardstock and we wrapped them up with twine and, but people resonated with the story. And so all along the way, while we were selling kind of this handmade version, we were behind the scenes trying to figure out how to scale and how to produce more because we couldn't keep up with the demand. And we really grew the demand on social media. And it was this, you know, the magic of Instagram uh, we didn't pay anything for marketing for almost three years into the business because of social media. And um, I called it for the longest time, the Instagram troll hour, where <laughs> I would just go and find like micro influencers, great moms that I thought would resonate with this product that had maybe like a thousand to 5,000 followers that might share about it if they love it, because we didn't have a budget to pay them to post. Mm -hmm. And so we just offered to send the product. And that's really how we gained the traction that we did because parents want things that are um, number one, well, cute to post on Instagram with their child and number two, that makes them feel good. And I think that's the thing with Slumberkins, you do the, the bedtime routine or the story with one of the creatures, the child loves the creature to snuggle with and the parent loves the message that they're instilling with their child. So it sounds like the first initial indicator you had of this being a, a potential business opportunity is selling out at the, um, what was it? What was the events that you did? Um, we did three local craft fairs mm -hmm. in our community in the Pacific Northwest. And then, and then we put them on Etsy and it was really through the traction from Instagram driving to Etsy that we kind of gained this 
um, organic traction because we couldn't keep up with the demand with us hand making them. So talk about that experience because there's a lot of people that, you know, have a product in their mind that they think could change the world or be really impactful in some way, shape or form. And then they go out there and they struggle to get those initial sales. So what was your process when you were trying to sell through Instagram? Like talk about, you, you know, you, you open up your phone or you, you open up the accounts, you know, how many people are you reaching out to? What are you saying to them to get them to post? What are the tactics of actually getting those sales in the early days? Yeah. Um, I think, well, that was a lot of questions at once. <laughs> now I'm, um, well, you had some also you had some early validation. It sounds like from these craft fairs, we saw some yeah. demand. Yeah. And once you had it on Etsy, you had it online, and you you and now you how do you drive traffic to it? And I guess Instagram was a primary. Method. Yeah, when we first put them on, I wouldn't say they looked exactly how they look now. And I think one of the things that we tell other people who are starting to put products out there is you can overthink an idea to death. And we really subscribe to the idea that like good enough is good enough for now, right? And we would rather see people buying it and giving us feedback or putting it out there and taking the risk um, than holding back, thinking about it, iterating so much that you think it to death. So we put them out there and um, the things that did well, we asked for feedback and we just kept iterating on that. Mm -hmm. And then... From like a growing eyes uh, around the community of the brand, you know, the Instagram troll hour, uh, I would spend hours after I put my kids to bed, I would lay in my bed and I would spend probably two to three hours wow. just sending DMs to different moms that I thought would resonate with the product. And the messages were always like very personalized. It was never a copy and paste message. I always looked at who they were as a person and read some of their blog, if they had a blog, looked and found their children's names and said, hey, I'd love to send a slumberkin to I don't know, Sam. And I think he'd really like this because this message promotes self-esteem. And so I'd always personalize it and then give it a really human touch and just explain, we're moms on a mission, we're educators, and we'd love for you to try out a slumberkin. Uh, let us know if you're interested. It was never a transactional thing. Um, it was never, and you know, some of them, some of the ones that I reached really high that had maybe a million followers um, would respond with, oh, here's my agent or, oh, I'm only doing paid promotions at this time. And I, our response would always be, thank you so much for the response. Um, we don't have the budget to participate in paid promotional advertising. We'd still love to send you the product if you're open to it. If not, no worries. And so, and after we would like send that kind of message back, then they'd be like, okay, just send it to me, oh, wow. <laughs> you yeah. know? And, and I think we built a lot of authentic and genuine relationships that way. We never outsourced for like an influencer agency to do campaigns with. We, we've always managed those relationships in-house and really built those relationships. Mm. Um, and I think it's benefited us and them because really the way that you can grow on social media these days is really by someone, I mean, people see through the ads immediately and really social media being the new word of mouth, people want to talk about what they're passionate about and most parents are most passionate about their children. And right. so I think that our product is the right, we're like the founder market fit and the product is kind of on this, it's a great fit for what everyone is really focused on right now in today's day and age of kind of building emotional wellness uh that's 
incredibly important though, that authenticity, because that's why you were able to get traction with people. You weren't necessarily looking for that quick win, which is why you made it personal, which is why you also still followed up and offered to, you know, give them the product. And that ultimately built the relationships where I'm sure, you know, you started to see measurable results from some of these people that would then post about you. So now was it uh, pretty clear when you reached somebody that let's say, shared on Instagram and they had 100,000 or 500,000 followers that you quickly saw the revenue numbers increase or did it depend on how engaged their audience was? Like, were you able to measure? We were known that we were able to measure really well at that time. We weren't sophisticated enough to be really tracking data at that point. But we did have a couple of hits where we got to, you know, some celebrities or like B-list celebrities (laughs) in our minds were big time celebrities. And, um, you know, they posted about it. And I don't think that we could attribute any sales to that. It was really the people who had engaged audiences that really resonated with the message that became our loyal followers that really started to convert to sales. And it's only recently that we've really honed in on the data behind that but um so we don't necessarily look at like oh they have you know two million followers if we get it in their hands that's going to make all the difference we've seen time and time again that's not how it goes for us yeah and we've actually seen the same thing with even how we grow our show sometimes uh we'll get on a podcast let's say that has a huge listenership and then we notice a little blip but then it kind of goes away and then sometimes we get on a smaller show but for some reason the audience really likes maybe the episode or we sounded really i don't know really good that day our voices were on spot on who knows what it is but and then all of a sudden we'll see like a more consistent growth so just because the numbers are really high doesn't mean that uh it's gonna net immediate results that are incredibly visible uh sometimes you just have to work with the audiences that might be the best fit but you guys did say that at some point you couldn't sew all these things yourself so you were seeing some growth and you needed to figure out how to scale it what was the next step so This was the really great thing about having a co-founder. So Kaylee and I doing this together because Kaylee's focus was really on our community that we were building in the moment. And she was listening to them and helping cultivate this community. And it allowed me to start thinking forward for the brand. So probably nine months before we actually placed our order, um, I was digging around trying to figure out how do you scale? How do you produce something uh, that's not handmade? How do you go overseas? And of course, I had no idea. So where do you go? Google. (laughs) And I just started Googling. uh, How do you do that? And actually, in the manufacturing world, it's really tough. Like people don't share their contacts. It's not really readily available. Um, I found out later that you can like get brokers who help connect you to manufacturers overseas. And of course, Alibaba is a thing now. Um, But at the time when I was doing it, those kind of things weren't really popping up. And so I found a couple and I ended up sending emails and just shooting for the stars and writing the president of a company that I had found that worked with, you know, the likes of Disney and DreamWorks and Ikea. And I was like, okay, this is obviously like top of the line where we should be aiming. I'm just going to write the guy and (laughs) see what he thinks. And obviously our MOQs at that time, the amount that we were trying to order was much lower than he would ever accept. But I think he was really inspired that we just wrote him and tried to strike up a conversation. And over the nine months of time that we were working through with other manufacturers that we had started relationships at the same time, 
um, at the end of the line, he ended up lowering his MOQs for us, and we got in the door with a you know top of the line manufacturer who took a chance on us, which has been game changing for Slumberkins. And he was the one he introduced us to now our strategic mentor. Her name's Maxine Clark. She founded Build a Bear. And so it's through these connections and mentors of people that really believe in your mission and the brand that want to meet you halfway just because they believe in your mission. Um, it's opened so many more doors behind the scenes. That's so cool. We we talk so much on our show about not being afraid to take a chance and actually reach out and ask people for help and not shoot yourself in the foot by assuming that they're not going to respond to you. And even if they don't, who cares? Do you remember what you said in the email to that person? Yeah, I think I said, you know, hi, you know, I know we're a small brand and um, that you work with huge brands, but we're trying to figure out how to scale and I know you're an expert in that and I would love to just understand your expertise a little bit better and know what what kind of things you look for when you partner with somebody. And then of course he told me and it was like way outside. I think I was looking to produce like 5,000 total slumberkins at that time and his per skew MOQ was like 5,000. Wow, <laughs> so wow. it was a little bit wild, but it was really good context for me too to understand, okay, that's where you have to get to work with somebody like him. And he had written back and said, you know, I really admire your entrepreneurial spirit that you reached out and you asked me these questions because I don't get a lot of emails like that. So it was fun for him to respond and kind of help somebody who was at an early stage. From that first email to when you guys actually established a relationship uh, and had him ship you guys the product, what was the amount for that order and how long did it take? So I think we placed the order mm, in July. July. Um, and it was for, it ended up being for 14,000 units. Wow. So, and that was the right number for us at that time. So from when I had reached out to him in December, I think, mm -hmm. to July, I was looking for 5,000 at the mm -hmm. time, but we had grown so much by the time we placed it. 14,000 was a stretch, but it was the right number for us at that time. So it was really still relationship-based, right? Like you, we kept it away from being transactional and every step of the way, we knew he was meeting us halfway. So we would always follow up. We sent a gift basket saying, thank you. You know, treating business relationships, everybody knows it's business, but when you put that extra effort in and you put the extra touch to say, you know, this means a lot to me and what you're doing is so helpful to me, people want to help because it feels good to mentor and help other people. Yeah, too many people look for the quick wins and uh, they don't invest enough time into actually building relationships. I mean, even the fact that you thought of sending a gift basket, somebody else wouldn't be like, oh, I'm not going to send somebody a gift basket. What if they don't work with me? Well, so what if they don't end up working with you? That's going to make them feel good about the relationship. Maybe they'll introduce you to somebody that will. And clearly here, it took six months for you guys to establish that relationship. You know, some of the coolest things that we've gotten to do, like write for Forbes and write for Harvard Business Review, for example, or have really cool guests on the show, like LeVar Burton, they take time to actually come together. They take building relationships, let's say, with a PR agency, building relationships with senior editors, and eventually pitching them enough times where they say, okay, we'll give you a shot. Then the article does well, for example, and then they, they ask you to write again. So these things do take time. But what's cool about your story is you guys actually bootstrapped this business for a while. Uh, and it seems like you guys had pretty fast growth, but still, until you got to $2 million in revenue, you didn't raise any outside funding, right? Uh what ultimately made you decide, okay, maybe we should raise some money for this, and how'd you go about doing that? 
I think that was a question we were asking ourselves. We got um, plugged into a scalarator um, in Portland called Starvups, and um, it was a founder-to-founder mentorship program where we were able to connect with other people who were um, had startups and had been through various stages of owning a startup. And it was the first time that we started hearing about fundraising. And for us, because we had such quick turns and we had this scarcity model, we were struggling to understand, like, why do you raise money? You know, we have all this product, we sell out immediately, and then we have all this cash, and then we just reinvest it, and we have this kind of flow going. And I remember reaching out and asking people, like, why? I don't understand. What is it about fundraising that, you know, why people do this? And I think about two months later, uh, we hit that point where it was like, oh, this is why. (laughs) Because to get beyond where we were at, which was just, you know, selling, having the money, draining the money down, putting it back in, we had these opportunities in the pipeline that were constricted by, our choices on it were constricted by cash. So if we wanted to bring somebody in to start really growing the business in, you know, let's say we wanted to start doing digital advertising, right? Like we didn't have that budget allocated from the money that was coming in that was all going back into product. And so we really needed to start to figure out, well, how do we want to scale this business and what are the funds that we need? And that was really the basis for saying, okay, we have this thing that's going we want to put some money towards some advertising. Um, and that was the impetus for doing our first um, seed round that we did right before the holidays of 2018. And you guys ended up raising a half million dollars with that seed round. Now, your first exposure to fundraising was, um, I believe, when you got on Shark Tank in 2017, right? And tell us about that experience because I guess you guys didn't get a deal, right? No, we didn't even get an offer. You didn't even get an offer. Um, Now, hopefully it did create a blip in sales or maybe more than a blip, but tell us what happened between then not getting that deal and and walking away from that experience and then actually learning how to present this as an investment opportunity to investors. Yeah. So Shark Tank was one of those things that for Kelly and I as educators, you know, we called ourselves accidental entrepreneurs for the longest time um, because... Shark Tank was the thing that really made us think bigger for the brand. It made us think through what our mission, vision, what our three to five year strategic plan is. Even filling out that application made us better business owners because it just made you have all of your ducks in a row before you can even get on the show. And then once we were on, it was, I mean, it was a crazy experience. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. It's really intense. You definitely, I mean, it's a real conversation about taking on investment and On the show, we did not realize the difference. When we were on the show, we didn't realize the difference between an angel investor and a venture capitalist. That's how early we were. And we were still making product in the USA at that time. Um, Actually, the day that we aired on Shark Tank was the day that our first PO that Kelly talked about, um, the 14,000 units that landed in the States, unpackaged. So then then we were up against the holiday timelines with shipping and e-commerce. And so then that was a whole other problem to solve, which that's, you know, we've come to realize owning a business is all about problem solving Mm -hmm. and kind of thinking ahead and strategizing about when you think something might break and what you need to get ahead to be able to prevent that. And I would say as we went out and started really raising our first seed round, you know, we got our hands slapped a couple times by seed funding uh, groups in our city. And for not really understanding 
the lingo and what they were looking for and your pitch deck, which I would say the first time we did our pitch deck, I thought that was like, okay, I did it and there's the final pitch deck and now I'm going to show it to people and it's mm. going to be amazing. No. <laughs> your pitch deck evolves every day pretty much and it changes and it's just an ongoing conversation. And that those were hard learned lessons actually as we went through uh, fundraising and learning how to present it to investors and actually raising as a woman uh, is very different, I think, than um, men who go out to raise money. So that was something that we felt a big difference on as well. So to that point, what do you say now to get investors excited? How did you figure out how to do that? Like, What are the words that come out of your mouth as two women that are building this company, but how else do you say the right words to get people excited? So I think this kind of goes back to when we were hand making this hand making Slumberkins, um, a former basketball coach of mine that had started a business that was kind of helping us along said, just finish this sentence. I'll know you've made it. I'll know I've made it when. And the two of us kind of sat there and thought about it. And our answer, even in the very earliest days, was when there's Slumberkins on ice. <laughs> and so <laughs> we always had a very big vision for what could come of the power of these tools that we were providing, as long with characters, more unique characters than anyone has ever put out there. Um, and I think that that's, that's another piece to the puzzle. Early on, we invested part of this uh, the funds that we reinvested were to protect the IP around the characters, the design of their faces and their bodies and how we were sewing them. And that's, you know, benefited us. And now when we're fundraising, we really lean on that big vision. And it's all about the mission and empowering parents. Mm -hmm. And it's led to a lot of really exciting opportunities. Yeah. And I would say like on that first slide after your, you know, title slide in the pitch deck, you have your one liner that catches everyone's attention. Right. And ours says we are the modern day Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that so, does feel big. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and then it's crazy what can happen with this kind of traction. So the really exciting news in our world right now is that we're in a co-production with the Jim Henson company to produce a Slumberkins television show based on our characters. Oh, so wow. it really is like the characters are coming to life and we're currently in negotiations with a global streaming platform. So we don't know exactly where it will end up yet, um, but we're that much closer to Slumberkins on Ice. That's so cool. Wow. Uh, you're, you're becoming a content company too. Uh, I'm curious. It's, part of what's exciting to me about hearing a story like this is it sounds like you backed into this whole thing and just figured it out along the way. You came up with the idea. I mean, you were domain experts, obviously, but you just went out and did it. And even though maybe you had some uh, friction with, let's say, investors early on because you didn't know all the terminology, it didn't matter because you had the traction. <laughs> and ultimately, people care more about that than anything else. So I know with Shark Tank, this is going to be a two-part question, but with Shark Tank, you recorded in September. It aired in December. November. 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 Okay. So two months turnaround. Tell me what happened with the business then and how you were able to keep up with increase in demand or even plan for something like that. Because I know you can't really plan for it. And also fast forward to now and talk about sort of... Uh, how your roles are different now, what the company has evolved to. Yeah, I would say getting the email, because you only get to know two weeks before you're going to air. So we really thought that we would be airing, we would have some more time to get ready after we filmed. Um, and then we got that email and, you know, our heads exploded <laughs> because uh, our shipment was actually planned to ship out around that time. We ended up having to air freight everything in, again, unpackaged. 
So once we aired on Shark Tank, it was this amazing opportunity. The timing worked out right to have our PO land the day it aired, but there was still a ton of work to do. We did not have a fulfillment center set up. We were doing all in-house fulfillment. We wow. had to package all of the slumberkins, the 14,000 slumberkins that came in on that plane. So we didn't go to Thanksgiving that year. <laughs> we didn't have a Christmas that year. Did you hire help? Uh, we did, but you know, some of the lessons that we've learned over and over again is that as we get into these spaces where um, you're making quick decisions or you're trusting that somebody is going to do something to alleviate a stress for you, that it can often be a siren's call, right? You have to be really careful about who you trust to hand over stuff to. So we ended up using, you know, bringing on a fulfillment center last minute because this was all so rushed, um, but they ended up not being able to do what we needed fast enough and we ended up taking it back from them and do ending up doing it ourselves wow. anyways um so there was some definite like gray hairs that came in <laughs> after that but it really catapulted us into this place where i think a lot of people who air on shark tank they have a jump in uh sales or views right and then it kind of dips off or you have a low year after that and slumberkins never had that we had customers and people who saw us that resonated with our story and they stayed on and actually what we did after shark tank we surpassed by i don't know like 50% or so uh, in the following uh, Easter uh, release that we had. No, 100%. 100%. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, you guys told us in the pre-interview that last year you did a million and a half. This year you're on track to do three million. Next year I'm sure it'll be six. But <laughs> talk about then where you are now, what your, how you're dividing responsibilities, what your respective roles are, and how big the team is. Yeah, so Kelly and I are co-CEOs, which is non-traditional, and especially as female founders, but we really operate like a yin and yang. So my brain really focuses on the creative. I kind of operate as like the creative director for the brand, and I get into the weeds with the marketing team and really focus on the content. My voice is kind of the voice that people see and hear on social media. Kelly um, is really great at uh, strategy, and operations um, and content. So the therapeutic content that comes through in the books and all of the, I'll ask her to write a blog post and she'll just brain dump. And then I take it and I edit it and make it more approachable and digestible for consumers because, and that's kind of the perfect marriage where Kelly's the therapist, I'm the teacher. So like I'm framing it up for parents to be able to use with kids. But I would say from a fundraising perspective, with me being so focused on kind of the sales and marketing side of the brand, it's really lent Kelly the time to be able to focus on strategy and making sure we have the right people at the table, which is great that She's a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> know how to scout them out. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And do you go to pitches together when you're fundraising? Yes. Always. Yeah, always. You guys seem like you're stronger as a team. You know, one of the things that we talked about before we hit record in this interview is that um, when you become a mother, and let's say you're on maternity leave, that's a lot of the times where people don't go back to the jobs that they were at because they realize, well, I'm either spending time with my kid or I'm at this job, this soul-sucking job, so I might as well be spending time on the things that I actually want to be doing. And here you are, two friends that have been friends since you were 14 years old that decided to start a company together. 
What would you tell to that mother who maybe is considering of not going back to the job and maybe she has an idea um, in her mind, thinking about who to start it with? You know, what would you say from your experience of starting this company together that worked really well, you having been really close friends and decided that, you know what, we're going to jump in on this venture together. A lot of people think it's really risky to jump in on something with your close friend. So if there's somebody that's considering doing something like this with their close friend or their sibling, how should they measure whether that they should jump into it or not? I think, you know, Kaylee and I didn't think about it that much, but now looking back, I can say like the yin and yang of our personalities and how we work together um, really lends itself so, so well to what we are doing. And the one thing that you have to have beyond anything is a deep, deep level of trust and knowing that the whole reason for us that we started this was based on our friendship, was based on becoming mothers at the same time. It was our kids are interconnected, our families are interconnected. If there is no us, there is no slumberkins. And so when it comes down to those hard times when we're fighting about stuff like on a campaign or something, we can always lean back on like, at the end of the day, we love each other and we're gonna come up against these things that are gonna challenge pieces in ourselves, right? Like shadow parts of ourselves that we need to work on anyways. And what better place to do it than together and to create something that's beautiful that we're trying to give to other moms and other families. And the mission of our company aligns so well with the mission that we have in life, which is to become better people and to have great emotional wellness. And so to do, that's why we're co-CEOs too, because if you can't be emotionally well, like you can't be in relationships. So if we're bumping up against stuff, there's a way to work through that. And we don't have to have one power over the other. We are a partnership and we want to bring that to families and to kids as well. And how big is the team now at Slumberkins? We have 10 people right now. We're actively hiring. <laughs> Any specific roles that you guys are hiring in case someone's Oh listening? yeah, the, a social media manager for sure. Um, because I'm still doing the copy and posting on social right now, but um, social media manager, potentially an art director, I need to be able to kind of talk high level creative vision and then have someone execute on it because we are starting to venture more with the entertainment opportunities ahead. We both have to be focused on those pieces as well. Um, and so I think right now we're trying to figure out who is the right team to surround us with that can really carry the brand while we're really focused on the high level content and vision. There you have the co-CEO of a multi-million dollar company still doing the social posting herself because that's that matters. Uh, and uh, Sergey and I do the same with our with our podcast. Co-CEOs Kelly and Kaylee with co-hosts Vadim and Sergey. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can what's the best place for people to find Slumberkins? Uh, slumberkins.com or on Instagram, just um, at Slumberkins. Awesome. And we'll, of course, share all that information in the description and show notes as well. Again, Kelly Kaylee, thank you so much. I'm so glad we got connected. This is an awesome story. We hope that it inspires everybody that thinks that, you know what, maybe this is not the right time to do something because let's say I'm a new mother or whatever it is that's happening in your life. If you have that idea and you're excited about it, maybe it is the right time. You should give it a try. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. <laughs>